The Lord is good, amen? amen. I said the Lord is good, amen? amen? It is such a joy to be here with you on another yet Lord's Day. Uh, I know some of you may be caught off guard by my wardrobe, and that's all right. Um, have, have no fears. We'll be back to the black on black on black next week. Um, man, I am so pumped to be here. And uh, Courtney, my bride, is here. And yes. Hey, girl. And our kiddos are somewhere in this building. Uh, don't know exactly what they're doing, hopefully uh, obeying. Um, but uh, again, it's just a, a thrill for us to be here with you. Um, before we hop into John 10, I, I want to um, uh, just kind of give you an incredible opportunity. And I want to extend this opportunity to you as what may be perhaps the most important thing in our church in this season. And that is the great need and opportunity to be an agent of potential life change. When I was seven years old, I wanted nothing more than to be like Mr. Herndon. Mr. Herndon was the man who led Children's Church and told us about Jesus, and the man who quite literally had uh, more influence on my life before the age of 13 than anyone else besides my father. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if I wanted to be like anybody, I wanted to be like my dad, uh, Dr. King, and Mr. Herndon. And uh, in this season in the life of our church, many of us have that same opportunity, uh, both with our children on Sunday mornings and also with our teens, our middle and high schoolers as well. And I say this to you not as uh, sort of the guilt trip of we need you to serve and X, Y, and Z, like, you know, if the Spirit of God is going to lead you, He's going to lead you. I will just say that uh, more than perhaps any other area of our church, the opportunity for lifelong lasting impact uh, is found in those areas. And so I would just ask you to consider serving uh, in those areas, potentially one Sunday a month. If this is something that you're interested in, you can go online on the virtual connect card and you can fill that out. Um, you can uh, screen cap the QR code in the seat in front of you, or you can grab a staff member and say, hey, we'd love to serve uh, once every four weeks, once every five weeks, once every six weeks, once every other week, whatever that looks like. I just want to present that opportunity uh, before you here this morning. Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word, uh, turn with me to John 10. But before we exposit and really um, look at John 10, there will be times that as your pastor, I will need to lend my voice to very important matters that we're living through. And in times of great polarity and divisions, there will be moments that we collectively experience when it is incumbent upon me to speak. Just this week, our nation watched with bated breath to hear the verdict against Derek Chauvin. And we watched to see if justice and accountability would be a reality, or for many, another example of a dream deferred. And all of us watched with different lenses, different focuses, different interpretations, and different filters. That great theologian, Bob Dylan, once famously opined, that the times, they are changing. And for many in our church, the times are changing swiftly. For some, it's moving too fast. 
The goalposts of expectation seem to change by the hour. For some, calls for diversity and inclusion actually sound like calls for exclusion, and some may wonder if there will be a place for you in this brave new world. For others, the world isn't changing fast enough. Some feel haunted by the litany of injustices throughout our nation's history and wonder if they will be next, if their son will be next, if their daughter will be next. Enshrined and memorialized in the form of a hashtag, a temporary memorial soon to be replaced by yet another poor soul. The times, they are a-changing. And here we are, all of us, various personal histories, various personal experiences, no lack of opinions or perspectives. And here we are, called by God to live together, called by God to take all of these different perspectives and not allow them to just live in one house, not just coexisting in the same space but a call to pray for one another and to love one another to the point where your love and your prayers, it feels like you're praying for yourself. That's unity. But this, I hope you feel, is a near impossible task. And what I hope you actually feel is the great challenge of this. And let me just say this. When God called me here to be your pastor, he did not call me here to pastor a certain demographic of people. He didn't call me to pastor a certain age range of people, a certain generation of people. He called me here to pastor you. And what I hope that you feel is in these polarized times, we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and we can rise to the occasion and meet that opportunity, or we can fail to meet it. We can reject overly simplistic answers to complex problems. We can focus on the love of those who call this church home, doing what the author of Hebrews says, doing well to everyone, especially those in the household of faith. And in our desperation, as we feel the weight of the a challenge that lay before us, we might actually turn to the source that would accomplish such an impossible task, which is the Holy Spirit. Amen. And even as I watched the events of this past week, I was reminded of a quote from Eddie Hilsom. Eddie, in 1948, was killed in Auschwitz concentration camp. She was a known writer and author, and just before she died, she wrote these words. She said, each of us must turn inward and destroy in himself all that he thinks he ought to destroy in others. And I can't help but to think, what would lead a Jewish woman to such candor, honesty, but humility? where she's actually self-examining as her kinsmen, according to the flesh, are being murdered. I believe, friends, that is a humility that cannot be self-contrived. It is only spirit-given. And so this call is actually a call to mortification. It's a call to die 
die to self, die to preference, and for us to live unto Christ and to actually be Jesus to one another. And to, to just be honest, there will be some who will choose to divest from this mission. There will be some who will choose to not be a part of this mission. And that's okay. We love them. We will bless them. We will pray for them. But for all of those intrepid souls who dare venture into the unknown and beg God to do something miraculous among us, hang on. Because it's going to be incredible. And to that end, we should pray to the Lord of hosts to be our God, to be our light, to be our peace and our unity. Would you pray with me? Not by might, nor by power, nor by strength, says the Lord of hosts, but by my spirit. Would you come and accomplish what only you can? Would you lead us to personal revival through mortification inwardly? And would that humble endeavor translate to the ways in which that we regard and we love one another? Holy Spirit, you are our peace. Would you be that? And would you lead us into deeper depths of relationship with one another that would result in your people being a beacon and a prime example that there is a kingdom breaking in that is not of this world. So would you come and would you do this? In the power of your spirit we ask. Amen. Amen. John chapter 10. Uh, when you get to John chapter 10, say, oh yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. Uh, what, what, for real? I mean... I mean, for real, uh, as we pick up here in John chapter 10, let me allow, allow me to set a little context for this morning. Uh, because there were no divisions, chapter divisions in the original Greek manuscript, what we pick up in chapter 10 is a continuation of chapter nine. It's what we talked about last week. Jesus using this blind man as a prime illustration for illustrating him being the light of the world, for him not only bringing light, but him bringing life. Jesus heals this man, they excommunicate this man, they cast him out of the assembly, and then they take their aims and their sights at Jesus. So here's Jesus in the midst of a long discourse against the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, and he reserves his harshest words for these leaders. He's already told them that they're blind, he's already told them that they're failing on the job, and now he's about to give them some more harsh words. And just parenthetically, this discourse is a mixture of metaphors. We're going to pick up on the shepherd metaphor in whole next week. We'll examine it to this morning in part. But for this week, let's look and see what it means for Jesus to be the door. John chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. 
for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. May the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of his word. So growing up as a big brother, there were often times when I felt I needed to protect my brother and oftentimes shield my brother. On one particular instance, we would walk up the hill to our bus stop, and there at the bus stop, there was a little kid there who was a bit of a bully, and he would frequently try to pick on my little brother. And on one particular morning that he was doing this, there I interposed myself between him and my brother, and I told him that if you want to get to him, you've got to go through me. In a very similar way, Jesus stands between this blind man and all of those who stand to benefit from the faith that this blind man exhibits and the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and religious leaders of the day. There, Jesus stands interposed between them, essentially saying, if you want to get to me, and really, if you want to get to heaven, you've got to go through me. And so what does he do? He calls them blind. I've got three points for us this morning, three that will kind of move us through the text. The first is a harsh, uh, uh, harsh words that Jesus reserves for these men in that we see first blinded pseudo-shepherds who are thieves. Blinded pseudo-shepherds who are thieves. Now, um, the Pharisees get a bad rap, Okay. Uh, just being honest, like we, we read about the Pharisees and from the time that we're knee high to bullfrogs, we think to ourselves, be anything except for a Pharisee. But if you jump back to the intertestamental period, the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, what you would find is you would find the origins of a Pharisaical system that were actually rooted in the best of intentions. Throughout that time, as Israel is fighting for its place in the world and fighting for this theocracy they want installed there in the Middle East, these religious leaders look back and they say, what has always been our problem? And so they look back at their fathers and what did their fathers do? Their fathers forgot the word of God. They forsook God. They had forsaken God. They had chosen to worship idols and they had left God and God in his magnanimous grace constantly steadily, frequently pursued them. They would forget and leave, God would chase. They would forget and leave, and God would chase. They would forget and leave, and God would chase until the exile when God said, you want so badly a life away from me, you can have it. So in this intertestamental period, these Pharisees essentially say, we will never commit that sin again. We will never forsake the word of God. We will be faithful and obedient to the things of God. We will listen and we will abide by his precepts and his laws. And we are going to do this to the point where God will never leave us. So all 613 Old Testament laws they placed before themselves and said, we must obey perfectly. Then they began to impose the same standards upon people. 
And then seeing that the Levitical priesthood had about 30 additional laws, they took those, they added them onto their 613, and then took those 613, or really 643 laws, and then imported them on the average person. In their earnestness to obey, while they would have upheld the letter of the law, they missed the spirit of the law. God gives the law in the Old Testament not as a prescription to self-righteousness where one might be able to absolve one's own sin through obedience. God gives the law so that you would feel the weight of your imperfection and inability to keep it and rest upon the grace of God. So here in verses 1 through 6, Jesus calls them thieves and robbers. We already know he's called them blind. He calls them thieves and robbers. Let me give you the picture. The picture here, Jesus probably standing in a small village. Jesus who uses his surroundings to preach great sermons. He's probably standing in a village and a little ways off. He sees a sheep pen. Now the sheep pen would have been a large enclosure built of stone four to six feet high. And on top of that stone would have been briars. That enclosure would have been enclosed all the way around except for a narrow opening there at the front called the gate. And the sheep would go into this gate. There might be eight to ten herds of sheep who would walk into and be led into the sheep pen and the walls would protect them from predators. So Jesus, in verse 1 and 2, says that all who choose to enter other than the door are thieves and robbers. He's essentially saying that all of those who seek to prey upon the sheep, who seek to enter into the sheepfold apart from the door, are thieves and robbers. Only predators climbed over the walls. Only thieves climbed over the walls. And this is important because sheep are currency. This is people's money. It's their cash, it's their dough, it's their greenbacks, it's their guap, it's their stacks, it's their racks, it's their, it's their money, it's their, it's their cash, that's cheese, you feel me? So, so, so to be a shepherd means that you have an intimate relationship with sheep. Look at verse 2. He says that the shepherd calls them by name. We can assume there's an intimate relationship existing between shepherd and sheep. We're going to talk more about this next week, so hang on to that. Next week, we'll get more into that. But then you think about this phraseology in verse 4, into verse 3, in verse 4, he leads them out. And then in verse 4, he brings them in. The sheep follow him, and they hear his voice. Now, don't miss this. This is intentional. We're getting to the point about thieves and robbers. This is really intentional. Jesus talks about leading out and leading in, leading out and leading in, leading out and leading in, which was a popular idiom to describe the work of a shepherd, which also describes all the men that God used throughout the Old Testament to lead his people. What does Abraham do if he does not lead his household out of the land of Haran and into the land that God would show him? What does God do in Moses if he does not lead them out of Egypt and into the promised land? What does God not do in Joshua and Samuel and David if it's not leading God's people out of one place and into another? In fact, we get these words in the book of Numbers, chapter 27, from Moses himself. 
At the very end of his life, he prays for his successor when he says this, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And here you have these Pharisees who have taken the law and they've created an incredible burden of the law. I wonder if you would understand why then Jesus, throughout the Gospels, we would hear him say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my what? Burden is light. These men have taken the goodness of the law, and they've made it a law unto itself. They've burdened these people, and now they've created themselves as the gateway to heaven. Now, now suppose for a moment that you were to come to my office and ask me, Pastor Cook, how can I make it to heaven? Like, how can I get to heaven? And you sat down, and we began to talk, and I told you, well, in order to get to heaven, you must never curse. You must never be intoxicated. You must never lust. You must never lie. You must never insult another person, whether in word or thought. You must never eat pork. Most of y'all out at this point. <laughs> I'm out at this point. You must welcome the sojourner and the immigrant. You must love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If, if I told you that, and then I spent the next four hours adding 600 plus additional laws to that, would you leave that meeting hopeful or would you leave that meeting hopeless? So you mean to tell me that there's no clear pathway for me to get to heaven? I actually have to obey in ways that I cannot. It is for this reason that I used to hate God. I used to hate God because I felt God was calling me to be something I could never be, and that was perfect. God, I can't be perfect. I'd go to church on Sunday riddled with sin, and I'd hear the old church lady singing, and I'd hear the pastor get up there and preach, and through tears I would confess and my sin and I would repent. I'd feel really good, like, Lord Jesus, thank you for this other opportunity. I feel, I feel clean only about three hours after church to bless somebody out. And then all of a sudden, I'm back in a situation where I'm like, okay, well, that's just one strike. Well, if I can just hang on to Monday, and we all know how Mondays go, Monday before coffee, Mondays before coffee in traffic in Atlanta, and by the time lunch comes around, we're all like, man, are we even believers anymore? And what I began to see is I began to see the church on Sunday as a bath, only for me to go back out into the world to get dirty again. And I'm riddled with guilt and condemnation, and I'm questioning my place in the family of God precisely because I believe my place in the family of God depends on my performance and what I do. Jesus is speaking to people, and he's calling them to see themselves as they really are, 
and into something that's real, and that is an intimate relationship with God. That's the second point this morning, that Jesus is the gateway to intimate relationship with God. One of the ways that I try to be intentional um, in discipling uh, our children is we spend a ton of time in the car. Charlie loves pop music, and the more poppy it is, the more she loves it. Uh, Cager, he loves like heavy metal, like rock music, like to the point where like the more screaming, the better. Um, Y'all pray for our son, please. Um, And uh, one of the things that we tend to do in the morning that we like to do, that I try to do consistently, is we go through the New City Catechism that teaches doctrine, theology, and scripture. Well, one of the questions in the New City Catechism is, can anyone keep God's law perfectly? If you were to ask the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they would say, hold my beer while I do this perfect law. But the New City Catechism says, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? That's the question. And the answer is, since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. To which it becomes the point of Jesus' discourse. Jump down to verse 7. Just a teaching moment. Anytime in the scriptures you see a truly, truly, that construct in the Greek refers to a double vocative. It's a double, double vocative. In the Greek, it conveys deep emotion or conviction. So you can hear Jesus' words, his, his, his frustration, his, his righteous anger, if you will. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, he will be saved, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. Okay, now watch this. If you enter the sheepfold by the door, you're a sheep. If you enter the sheepfold by the door, you could also be a shepherd. If you enter by the, any other way, you're a thief and a robber. If you enter by the door of Jesus Christ, you are a sheep. If you enter by leaping the walls, you are a predator and a thief. If you enter by faith in Jesus, you're a sheep. If you try to enter by performance and works and self-effort, you don't belong to the fold. So imagine what Jesus is doing is he's becoming increasingly exclusive in whom his fold is. There's only one way in, and there's only one way out. But then it strikes me in the text how when John speaks about this sheepfold and by the door, it's odd to me. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Okay, so if the shepherd enters through the door, right? But then Jesus says that he's a door. Then the shepherd is also a door who's also a sheep. Wait a minute, John. So so the shepherd who enters the sheepfold is also the door by which you enter the sheepfold. And the only way that sheep enter the sheepfold is by the one who goes before them who's also a sheep. 
The beauty of the gospel is that no other religion has the hero dying for the villain. No other religion, no other god of the pantheon would condescend themselves so much as to take the form of the very creatures they demand worship them. But who is Jesus if he is not a sheep? That like a sheep or a lamb being led to the slaughter, he doesn't open his mouth. Jesus is a forerunner for us who goes before us to prepare a place for us. Are you you feeling me? Let me? Let me back all the way up. So in Genesis, we get introduced to a garden that's in Eden. It's not the garden of Eden. It is a garden in Eden. God creates the universe, which is a special place. He creates an earth that's an even more special place. He creates Eden, which is an even more special place, and a garden that's inside of it. The concentric circles of God's creation is mimicked and mirrored in tabernacle and temple construction so that at the very center of the tabernacle and the temple is the holy of holies where only one man can go beyond the veil to commune with God. Are you with me? So rather than a sinful man being the mediator for us, and rather than someone preparing a way for us to speak to God on our behalf, what Jesus says is, I will become like you. I will go and do the work for you. I will be like a lamb led to the slaughter without a word. He doesn't open his mouth. And in his death, as soon as he says it is finished, the ground erupts and vomits back its dead. The sky is black and the veil is torn because we have a shepherd who's also a door, who's also a sheep, so that we by faith might become intimate with God because of his work. Amen. Hallelujah. I don't think y'all hear me. Here's what I love. Here, here's what I love is that Jesus is our shepherd, he's also our door, he's also our sheep, which means that if we try to find any other way to heaven and intimacy with God apart from him, we've got to go through a shepherd, we've got to go through a door, we've got to go through a sheep, and what we ultimately do is we make ourselves our own door. Adam and Eve in the garden in Eden were righteous. And yet they threw away their righteousness and their relationship with God in an attempt to become like God. Satan whispers in the form of a serpent, has God really said? Don't you want to be like him? And what they do, not to be overly anachronistic, is they take their own will and volition, and they make themselves a door unto themselves. And the result of them trying to be a door unto themselves is being expelled from the garden. So that Jesus, who is here, tells these men that he is the door. Friends, here's my question. In what ways are you attempting to be your own door to heaven? In what ways are you attempting to forge your own path to God. Moreover, in what ways have you appointed yourself as a door to others? Well, you can't be a Christian unless you've got Jesus and republicanism. 
or you can't be a Christian unless you've got Jesus and social justice. You can't be a Christian unless you've got Jesus in private school. You can't be a Christian unless you've got Jesus in public school. Are y'all all right? Too often, we become modern-day Pharisees when we either implicitly or explicitly restrict the kingdom of God to people who think and act just like us. And we take these laws and these burdens and we heap them on our friends and those around us and even more so on our enemies. And we become a gate unto them unlike the gate of Christ. But here's what I love. In verse 8, the sheep, they don't listen to these thieves and robbers. So sheep, I want you to hear me. Don't listen to these thieves and robbers that's telling you that you need uh, 11 kinds of ways to Sunday in order to be right with God. I'm just telling you that what you need is faith in Christ to be right with God. There are some people who are so riddled in sin and guilt and shame because you feel like you got to wear a long skirt, you got to listen to the right music, that you can't drink, that you can't think the right ways or in particular ways, that somehow that removes you from the love of God. Paul says, can't nothing remove me from the love of God in Christ, not height, nor depth, nor length, nor breadth, nor anything in heaven or earth or underneath the earth, nor powers that are here, nor powers to come. Nothing can separate me. Why? Because of faith. Listen, 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 listen. I'm getting, I'm getting happy now. I'm getting happy now. The shepherd would often sleep in the middle of the gate of the sheep pen so that sheep would not be able to wander out and predators couldn't get in through the gate. So if Jesus is our gate, if he's our medium, if he leads us out and he leads us in, then if he's led us into the kingdom of God and the family of God, we can't get out unless it's past him. And he's standing there talking to our sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave saying, baby, in order to get to Jason, you got to go through me. Hallelujah. So, 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 I need to, I need to calm down. Listen, listen. Friends, family, enter by the door and be saved. Enter by the door and be saved. Saved from the wrath of God, saved from the power of sin, saved from the schemes of hell, saved from the incessant idol of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, saved from your striving and your ceasing, saved from yourself, friend, get off the hamster wheel of performance and drink deeply from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's the point, here's the point of all of this sermon, it comes down to this, here's the thrust, that Jesus is the entrance to the kingdom of heaven and his sheep are evidence of the kingdom breaking into earth. In verse 10, this is, this is so good, in verse 10, we find here in verse 10, a beautiful picture of what it means to be a sheep. And here we find what the abundant life is, which, third and finally, the abundant life is found by entering into the Father's joy. The abundant life is found by entering into the Father's joy. The, the late, great uh, Reverend E.B. Hill out of Los Angeles once famously said in a sermon, as he's rising in the middle of his cadence, he says, the thief, according to John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy 
And then he adds, but the Bible never says that he's going to do it, which I like that. But I also don't think it directly captures the content and the context of John 10 up until this point. What Jesus is saying is that thieves come to steal, kill, and destroy. Thieves who come to add to the burden of the gospel, thieves who come to add to the responsibility of faithfulness, or the, the, the threshold of faithfulness, thieves and robbers who come to add to what Christ has added, he says these people come to only steal, kill, and destroy. And we see this in church. My hope is built on nothing less except for Jesus' blood and his righteousness. So then I begin to think to myself, what about the abundant life? What about the abundant life? Well, we can't really understand the abundant life until we really, really sense and know what Jesus is talking about and still killing and destroying. And in Matthew 23, 15, hear these words from Jesus to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That is a thief and robber. When you convert them not to the person and work of Christ, but you convert them to look like you. Directly contrasting that is this idea of the abundant life, this Zoe. And what is the abundant life? The abundant life, friends, is entering into the Father's joy. It's entering into the Father's joy. In the parable of the prodigal son, there's two sons. There's one who runs and squanders his life, his inheritance. And there's another son who's an older son who stays at home, who fancies and thinks himself better than his brother because he stayed home. He did everything that was right. The father sees his son from a long way away and he runs to him and embraces him and brings him into the house. He says, slaughter the fatted cow. We throw in a party. It's about to be lit in here. My son, who I thought was dead, he is now alive, right? So they throw in this party, and it's on and popping. And next thing you know, the older son, he comes. Um, on and popping means that the party is raging. It's a great party. I'm sorry, y'all. I got I to do my audience. I'm sorry. So, so the older son, he comes in from the field. He's like, what happened? Well, they slaughtered a fatted calf. It's a party. And the son, he's livid. And just parenthetically, I just want you to see this in, 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 in the Bible and the text. God is the first missionary in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve don't go looking for God. God comes to them. God goes looking for them. When the father sees his son from a way off, the father runs to his son. And then when the older son is having his moment, the father goes to the older son. And the father is trying to plead with his older brother and say, enter into my joy. You want to know what the abundant life is, is you're in my house. Enter into my joy. And the older son can't enter into his joy because the older son is more set on all the things that he does for his father. He feels like he deserves back pay as opposed to enjoying the relationship with the father himself. That is the abundant life. The abundant life is found by entering into the Father's joy, and the Father's joy is loving all of his lost children. And I am grateful to the Lord that the Spirit of God, through his word, acts as a hymn of protection around me to protect me from pseudo-shepherds and thieves, but I also love that Christ, as my gate, 
stands in between you and the enemy and essentially says to your troubles, in order to get to her, you're going to have to go through me. Let's pray. As we reflect on God's word, it always demands a response. The response of the sheep in the text is faith and obedience. In what ways is God calling you to faith and in what ways is he calling you to obey? Let's take the next 30 to 60 seconds to hear from the Lord and respond to his word. Father, forgive me when I establish myself as a gate unto myself and a gate unto others, becoming self-righteous and prideful beyond the prescription you give us by faith in your finished work. Lord, if I am the gatekeeper, I'm the only one in heaven, and I thank you that I am not that even now your grace abounds to us. So would you come through this word, transforming us, moving us into a deeper reflection and a deeper image of you, Christ? And as we sing and lift our voices in praise and in song, would you make your home in our praises, encouraging our souls to seek you with all of our heart, mind, and strength, and when we fail, to rest and rely on the shepherd who is our gate and also a sheep who knows our frame and has accomplished what we cannot in our own strength. Praise be to your name. Lord, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.